The ingredients for today's episode are Turandot, Perseverance, and Chartreuse. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. The first time I ever heard Turandot, I was 16 years old. My parents had purchased me a beautiful Pioneer rack component stereo system. Like every other 16-year-old, I wanted a car, but instead I got a stereo. I sat in my bedroom one sunny Sunday afternoon and put in the CD player a new recording that I had just purchased, Puccini's Turandot. I knew nothing about the opera and very little about the story. I really only knew that one tenor aria that seemed to be playing everywhere. I pressed play and was immediately blown away with the sound. After all, I had two speakers that were four feet tall. When the opera ended, I found myself in tears, and curious if it would have the same effect on me a second time, I decided to listen to the whole opera again. My parents were thoroughly confused and wondering why I wasn't outside, enjoying the beautiful weather. From that moment on, I knew I had to be an opera conductor, and I had to do this opera. My life was forever changed. Suddenly, it was as if it were all in a dream, and my life was laid out in front of me. Okay, I thought, I can do this. Giacomo Antonio Domenico Michele Seconda Maria Puccini was born on December the 22nd, 1858, in Lucca, Italy, and died on November the 29th, 1924, in Brussels, Belgium. He was the sixth of nine children. His father was the head of music at the local cathedral, and it had always been assumed that Puccini would grow up to take over the church music job after his father retired. After all, that position had been held by a Puccini since his great great grandfather whom he was named after. By the way, what a name. Don't you like that? All those initials, can you imagine the monogram? It's half the alphabet. His father died when he was six years old, and since he was too young to take over as the organist, he joined the boys' choir, and later, when he was a little older, started substituting as the organist. He started his music studies with his uncle, and then later at the seminary of the cathedral. After receiving a grant from the Queen, Puccini studied composition for three years at the Milan Conservatory, And it was here he roomed with another budding composer, Pietro Mascagni. At the age of 21, Puccini composed his Mass. This composition marks the culmination of his family's long association with church music. On March the 11th, 1876, at the age of 18, Puccini walked from Lucca, Italy to Pisa, Italy, a distance of 17 kilometers, or about 10 miles, to see a production of Verdi's Aida. Upon his walk home late that evening, Puccini claims that the hand of God came down from the heavens and placed his finger upon Puccini's forehead and declared, quote, you shall compose for the theater. No opera ever gave Puccini such heartaches or caused him to suffer such agonies of frustration as the opera he never lived to finish. Biographer Spike Hughes says, quote, it was not so much that he died before he could finish Turandot as he did not finish Turandot before he died. The years Puccini spent composing his last opera were abnormally filled with periods of despair and loss of self-confidence, with second thoughts 
moments of complete deadlock between himself and the librettists, and weeks, long, long periods of many weeks, when Puccini, ready to compose, was left with no words to set to music. Speaking of words, and before we go any further, it's time for a cocktail. So who gets the last word? Does she get the last word? Or does he get the last word? It doesn't matter because we're getting the last word, but I'm talking about the cocktail. The last word cocktail is a gin-based cocktail. It's a Prohibition-era cocktail. comes from around the 1930s from the Hotel Savoy in London. It's a really easy drink to make, so let me break it down for you. At your bar, you're going to need to get your bottle of gin. You're going to get that bottle of green chartreuse that you've got collecting dust in the back of your bar, probably right next to the Campari. You're going to get that bottle of Luxardo, and you need some fresh-squeezed lime juice. Equal parts all the way across. You're going to start by putting some ice in the cocktail shaker. To that, add an ounce and a half of gin. An ounce and a half of green chartreuse. An ounce and a half of Luxardo. And finally, an ounce and a half of fresh squeezed lime juice. Now give that a good shake, 10 seconds or so. Strain it into a chilled martini glass. And garnish it with a Luxardo cherry. And there, my friends, you have the last word. Enjoy. So, my friends, I hope you're enjoying the last word. And here we are, moving on. June of 1919 found Puccini in London to solidify plans for the upcoming Covent Garden production of Il Tritico. He had announced his plans to be present as long as, quote, that pig of a Toscanini wasn't engaged to conduct. Short side note, Toscanini had no intention of conducting, especially after he got angered and walked out of the theater in total disgust. A close friend of Puccini's recalled, quote, his hair had begun to turn white, but it was abundant as ever. His movements were perhaps a little slower, a more measured. But the coming of old age over which he continually lamented was for him very gradual and almost unnoticeable. As he usually did while in London, he attended the theaters looking for a subject for his next opera. Some of the shows he saw and became interested in were Frederick Norton's musical comedy Chu Chen Chow, and it had been a smash hit in London since 1916. Puccini also saw the melodrama Mr. Wu by Vernon and Owen, and this was later turned into an opera by Eugene Albert. Puccini's friend and librettist Forzano also offered up an original play, and it interested Puccini very much. Cristoforo Sly was a play based on the idea of expanding the prologue of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. After some consideration, Puccini wrote, quote, Sly is no good, Forzano is unhappy about it, and so am I for his sake. Puccini was even offered help from Sir Thomas Beecham, the great English conductor. He had promised to supply Puccini with some appropriate Elizabethan popular songs for inspiration and research. 
Puccini finally killed the idea. However, it did finally make it to the stage in 1927, as it was set as an opera by Wolfferi. In the fall of 1919, Puccini wrote to Adami, quote, Create something for me that will set the world weeping. They say sentiment is a sign of weakness, but I like being weak. To the strong, so-called, I leave the triumphs that fade. Adami wrote back and mentioned a libretto based on Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. Puccini changed his mind once again. Side note, New Year's Day 1920, Puccini hosted a party for friends. If friends were not able to make the journey, he sent them a traditional Italian Christmas cake. Since he and Toscanini were still feuding, he declined to invite his old friend to the party. However, he did send the cake. After the cake was received, Puccini sent a telegram saying, quote, cake sent by mistake. Toscanini, not to be outdone, replied, quote, cake eaten by mistake. In mid-March, Puccini and Adami met for lunch in Milan, and here the idea for Turandot was mentioned for the first time. Adami gave Puccini a copy of the Carlo Gozzi play for him to read on his trip to Rome. From Rome, Puccini wrote, quote, I've read Turandot, and I don't think we should abandon this subject. The story of Turandot, an age-old fable of a princess whose hand can only be won by solving three riddles, with the suitor losing his life should he answer one wrong, came into European literature through a collection of Arabian folktales translated by Francois Delacroix. From there, it was passed to Gozzi, who used it as the fourth installment of his theatrical fables, all produced in Venice during the 1760s. Puccini called the play, quote, the most normal and human of Gozzi's works. Before Puccini, two other Italian composers had set the Gazzi play to music. In 1867, Antonio Bazzini, Puccini's composition teacher, had opened his Turanda at La Scala. One critic wrote, quote, a stupid, totally uninteresting libretto, an absolute lack of melody of any kind, no form, new or old, an opera that will live for just a few days. Well, he was correct. The other setting, of far more importance, was Boissoni's Turandot which took the composer 16 years to write. It was originally a suite of five movements designed to serve as incidental music for the Gazzi play. Bosoni reworked it into a two-act opera set to a German libretto that he wrote himself. Three undated letters to Adami from Puccini, estimated to be from late March of 1920, indicated a few of his first thoughts on the show. One, Puccini wanted exotic color to be obtained from Chinese folk melodies and the use of Chinese instruments on stage. Two, the addition of another character that was not in the original Gazzi play to give the story a more touch of charm. This would eventually turn out to be Liu, the slave girl. And three, the characters titled The Masks, if they're not completely eliminated, would be kept to a minimum, merely providing, quote, an oasis of Italian common sense amid so much Chinese mannerism. 
Side note, Puccini used original Chinese melodies in the score to create an authentic color. A former diplomat to China provided a music box to Puccini, and from this music box, Puccini was able to use three melodies. His friend, Carlo Clausetti, sent him a score of Van Ost's piece, Chinese Music, that was composed in 1884. And from this piece, Puccini was able to use four melodies. By mid-May, Adami had provided Puccini with the first draft of the libretto for Act One. Later that summer, after returning home from London, where he had been overseeing a production of Il Trittico, he received the drafts for Act Two and Act Three. At the end of the summer, Puccini and his family traveled to Vienna for productions of La Rondine and Il Trittico. And here, Puccini was feted with the usual parties and lavish dinners that he had grown accustomed to. As always, he was the talk of the town and the center of all social circles. After returning home, Puccini wrote to Adami, quote, So you think that I am happy after the welcoming I receive in Vienna? On all my travels, I have carried about with me a large bundle of melancholy. I have no reason for it, but that is the way I am made. I'm afraid that Turandot will never be finished. When the fever abates, it ends by disappearing, and without fever there is no creation, because emotional art is a kind of malady, an abnormal state of mind, overexcitement of every fiber and every atom of one's being. By January of 1921, Puccini was more hopeful. He wrote to a friend, quote, It will be a fine libretto, and above all, highly original, full of colors, surprises, and emotion. April saw him finally at work on Act One in his constant changing moods, from enthusiasm to total despondency. He wrote to another friend, quote, I don't seem to have any more faith in myself. My work terrifies me and I find nothing good anywhere. I feel as though from now on I'm finished. Nine days later, he wrote to the same friend, quote, Turandot is going well. I feel I'm on the high road. I'm at the masks now and will soon be at the riddles. He was obviously not composing the score in order. On May 22nd, he wrote, quote, I've finished the terrible song for the executioner. I'm starting on the moon chorus and the funeral march for the Persian prince. The opera is taking on huge proportions. On June 7th, he wrote, quote, I met the ghosts. I'll merely say that I've already done 
non piangere lui and signora ascolta. Why all of a sudden was Puccini in such a composing mood? On May 2nd, he had attended the premiere of a new work by Muscogny and had felt pleasurable disappointment after the performance. He wrote to a friend, quote, After what I've heard in Rome, I feel more in the mood now than ever. After a lovely visit from friends in August, September introduced a whole new problem that threatened to bring the entire project to a complete halt. Puccini decided he wanted Turandot to be in two acts, not three. He stressed the visual advantages of the two-act format, beginning with sunset and ending with sunrise. To Simone, one of the other librettists, he raised the possibility of arriving at the conclusion by way of a transformation scene modeled on the third act of Wagner's Parsifal. Puccini called it, quote, the Chinese Holy Grail. It took the librettists a while to get back to Puccini with an answer, and during this time period, Puccini fell into despair. He wrote to a friend, quote, Turandot languishes. I haven't yet got the second act as I want it, and I don't feel myself capable anymore of composing music. If I had a charming, light, sentimental subject, a little sad, with a touch of burlesque in it, I think I could still do something good. This was not one of his usual woe-is-me letters. Puccini was actually seriously considering dropping Turandot. In November, he wrote again, quote, Turandot will end by going to the wall because the libretto of the second act is no good, and I have done the first act. I'm looking for something else from Forzano with an eye to London. In December, the team met and worked through the problems of the project. After much going back and forth, Puccini decided not to abandon Turandot and agreed on the three-act version again. Nineteen twenty two brought its share of distractions to Puccini and threatened the progress of Turandot even more. Recording New York had sanctioned the publication of a foxtrot based on the humming course from Madame Butterfly. When Puccini found out about this, his first thought was to bring legal action against the publishing firm for whom he felt he had done so much. He was disgusted at the quote disfigurement of his music. Also, instead of promoting his music, the firm was showering publicity on a new composer in his newest work. 
When Puccini went to see the work in Rome, he wrote that it was total trash and he disliked it very much. With the contract for Turandot still yet to be signed by Ricordi, Puccini threatened to send it to a rival publishing firm. And then there was the distraction of a young soprano, whom Puccini had fallen in love. Photos and letters were exchanged, but no official meetings had occurred. Because of her, quote, affair with Puccini, many companies decided to drop her from their rosters. One conductor even said of her, quote, her high C is like the whistle of a train. During all of this, Puccini still waited for the final version of the libretto for Act Three. Again, he thought about an alternate subject, all while begging for the need of the completed libretto. Finally, in June, he received it, and Puccini's spirits were once again soaring. Puccini now felt like he was able to sign the contract for Turandot with Casa Ricordi, especially since the Foxtrot affair had been settled out of court. Side note, while on holiday in August of 1922 with his family, Puccini got a bone lodged in his throat during dinner. Doctors were called in to extract it. The scar in his throat left from the bone is the exact spot the tumor grew from two years later. The fall of 1922 found Puccini once again traveling for revivals of his works in Paris. Puccini once again thought of a two-act version of Turandot, and again, it was shot down. Puccini was waiting for the libretto once again. 1923 began with the production of Manon Lascaux, conducted by Toscanini. He and Puccini finally were on better speaking terms after the Christmas cake incident, and even decided to travel together sometime in the upcoming summer. The spring and summer were spent overseeing revivals of Manon Lascaux, Butterfly, and Il Tritico. Puccini worked on Turandot when he was able, but was still missing some much-needed text from the librettists. While he waited on the libretto so he could finish the grand duet of Act Three, he worked on the orchestration of Act Two and the first part of Act Three. He wrote, quote, All music I've written up to now seems to me a joke, and I don't like it anymore. Is this a good sign? I think it is. By mid-February 1924, plans were going forward for the premiere production at La Scala with Toscanini conducting. With it was to be linked a performance at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City with Puccini in attendance. Work on the final duet moved forward slowly, but something else started to consume Puccini. In March 1924, Puccini suffered from a sore throat combined with a dry cough. For a while, Puccini did nothing about it. In May, while at a spa in hopes of recovering from his ailment, the librettists finally sent the fifth version of the final duet. The summer passed without any further progress in the composition. A visit from a friend in August raised his morale, and he resumed composing, but only for a little while. Four throat specialists had been consulted, all of whom made different diagnoses and recommended different treatments. The general consensus was that the pain was rheumatic. The premiere of Turandot was now planned for April in 1925, with a young Gili as Calaf. Puccini played for Toscanini what he had composed so far, and it was met with much enthusiasm. However, even Toscanini agreed that the text for the final duet was not quite right. Puccini wrote to Adami, quote, an elephant's head of which we need to rid ourselves as soon as possible. Side note, Puccini had been a lifelong heavy smoker. As a young teenager, while he was organist at the cathedral in Lucca, 
He would often take metal pipes from the pipe chambers and sell them to metal recyclers in order to have money to buy his cigarettes and cigars. He would have to remember which pipes he took and then play around the ranks to keep from having holes in the sound of the organ. When he left the cathedral and the new organist took over, the new organist was stunned to find that several hundred pipes were missing from the organ. Puccini continued to suffer from throat pain. Once more, a specialist was consulted. The doctor told Puccini that his pain was caused by a slight swelling that could be rendered harmless with treatments of radium or an operation. However, it was Totonio, Puccini's son, that the doctor told the truth. Puccini was suffering from an inoperable cancer. Tonio took careful steps to make sure his parents did not know the truth. Upon his return, Puccini one evening was sitting at the piano, surrounded by friends, and played through the prelude to Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. When he got to the end, he threw the score to the ground and exclaimed, quote, Enough of this music. We are all amateurs. Heaven help us if we get caught up in it. This terrible music annihilates us and makes us unhappy and unable to achieve anything. Tonio arranged for one last consultation with another specialist on October the 28th. This doctor offered a small ray of hope. The development of radium treatments at his clinic in Brussels had cured many patients with this type of cancer. Puccini and Tonio set out on November 4th to travel to Belgium. With him, he took his musical sketches for the final duet so that he could continue working. Elvira was unwell and not able to travel with them. A short side note. Up to this point, Puccini had finished the composition and orchestration of Turandot through the death of Liu. All that remained was the final duet and chorus. The treatment started with radium applied externally by means of a steel collar. This allowed Puccini to move about and even was able to attend a performance of Madame Butterfly. On November the 24th, a three-hour surgery took place. Unable to speak and nourished only by a nasal tube, Puccini was declared on the road to recovery. Optimistic telegrams were sent to Elvira and friends and even included the composer Franz Lehar. Finally, at 11.30 on November 29th, Puccini's heart gave out. The great maestro was dead.
A funeral service was held two days later in Brussels, and Puccini's body was taken by train to Milan. On December 3rd, the official funeral was held at the cathedral. The Cardinal Archbishop of Milan officiated the service. Toscanini conducted the Requiem from Act Three of Edgar. Guests included consuls and dignitaries from Belgium, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Japan, and the United States. The cathedral was covered in funeral decor strictly reserved for use by the royal family. Elvira remained at home, shattered by grief and illness. Puccini's body was laid to rest in the Toscanini family tomb until the Puccini tomb could be constructed, and two years later, his remains were moved. During all of this, there lingered one small problem. Turandot remained incomplete. Finally, Franco Alfano was chosen to finish the opera based on Puccini's sketches. The world premiere took place on April the 25th, 1926, with Toscanini conducting. None of the cast that Puccini had handpicked were engaged to seeing this production. In Act 3, as Liu's death scene came to an end, Toscanini put down his baton, turned to the audience and said, quote, It is here the maestro lay down his pen. Here we shall end the performance. The next night, the opera was performed and its completion. The story of Turandot is simple. Boy meets girl. Girl forces boy to a riddle challenge. Boy gets them all correct. Girl gets pissed off. Boy offers her a very easy one-question challenge. If she can guess his name by sunrise, he will happily die for her. Girl has a young slave girl who is secretly in love with the boy, tortured to find out his name. The slave girl kills herself to keep from giving in to the pain of the torture. Finally, the boy tells the girl his name, assuming he will now die. The girl announces to the crowd that she alone knows his name, and it is love. Boy and girl live happily ever after. My friends, throughout the episode, you've been listening to clips from my favorite recording, and it just so happens it's my recommended recording. And this is the same exact recording that I listened to so many years ago on my 16th birthday on my giant brand new stereo system. This is the great late Joan Sutherland, the great late Luciano Pavarotti, conducted by Zubin Mehta with the London Symphony Orchestra. You probably have it in your recording library. If you don't, get it. I, that's all I can say about that. And um, get the recording. Recommended reading, a really fun book called Puccini's Turandot, The End of the Great Tradition by William Ashbrook and Harold Powers. It's printed by Princeton Press. A very, very in-depth study of the analytical side of this great opera. So that's my recommended reading. You can find it on Amazon or you can find it in your local bookstore. 
My friends, I would like to give a very special shout out tonight. You know, we always do shout outs at the ends of episodes. Tonight, I'm not shouting out to a company. Tonight, I'm shouting out to a group of people. And that is my great team here at the Mischievous Maestro. Ryan, Megan, Jeff, and Yvonne. It's so awesome to be doing this with you guys every week. I'm really excited to start work on season two. And it's just going to be a lot of fun. I think we've got something really great here. And it's just fun for us to all be together working on this. My friends, speaking of season two, look for it to launch sometime in mid to late January of 2021. Listen to it. Subscribe. You're really going to like it. In the meantime, there will be a holiday special sometime in December. So we want you to hear that. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And my friends, just to give you a preview of what's coming up for season two, we're going to be talking about the bad boys and the bad girls of opera. And we can't wait for you to listen. And we can't wait to be with you again. So since this is the last episode of season one, we here at the Mischievous Maestro Recording Studio are about to celebrate. Until then, my friends, until we're all together again, continue to stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink or drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the Mischievous Maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.